So Job, chapter 29, verses 1 through 4. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent. And scroll down to chapter 30, verse 1. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Scan over to chapter 31, verses 1 through 4, where we see here, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would my portion be from God above, my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and a disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? And then we see chapter 31, verses 35 through 37, where Job declares, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we have sat with Job for some time now. Um, and we've heard the heaviness of his cries. We've seen the, the calamity that he's been under. But uh, we pray uh, this morning as we hear his final words that they will uh, instruct us, that they will uh, lead us and guide us uh, to the Savior whom we need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I would like to begin by asking you to picture with me in your minds, to picture a courtroom. Um, picture a very grand courtroom. You, you, you know the type, the, the type with the white pillars and the, line, the lines that run up the pillars, the, the kind of courtroom in which there, there is this ornate carved wood that's been done so perfectly by hand, the kind of courtroom in which you see the copper ceilings and the, the granite floors. But picture this courtroom is not just simply a building, it's large, it is the size of a city. And then picture in the middle of this courtroom, at the very center of it, stands a judge, not clothed in black, but clothed in pure white. He radiates and just leaps off of him his supreme, sovereign, ruling character and grace and wisdom. And then picture in this large gathering that there are a thousand times a thousand times a thousand Spiritual beings, angels who are gathered around this judge in this courtroom. He is called an assembly. He said, everybody come gather together. And these angels are anxious to hear what this judge has in mind, what he's called them there together to do. And as he begins to call certain ones forward and hear what they've been up to and how they've been at work in his kingdom. Well, he calls forward one whose name is the Satan. Satan, the accuser. And this one is called forward, and as he comes forward, the Lord, the judge in the midst of this city, in this amazing courtroom, he says, what have you been up to? What have you been doing? And the Satan, the accuser, begins to say, well, I've been 
hanging out with men on earth. I've been paying attention to the ways. I've been paying attention to what they've been up to. I brought with me a list of ways I want to tell you that they've been spitting in your face, that they, that they abhor you, that they don't like you, that they stand in opposition to you. And while in this courtroom, the judge then says, well, that's interesting, but have you considered my servant, Job? There's no one like him. And he says, oh, yes, I've gone to and fro the earth and paid attention to Job. You see, I'd like to make an accusation against not only Job, but you. I'd like to make an accusation that Job is blameless and upright because you have blessed him with prosperity. Because you have given him all the wealth of his hands. I'd like to just propose that if you take away this, that this Job, he'll curse you to your face. And then what proceeds is not just a test of the emergency broadcast system, but friends, what happens to demonstrate whether or not Job will be true or right was a true loss of real pain and heartache. And if you and I were there watching this courtroom scene like it was a movie, well, then we'd see the accuser leaving the courtroom leaving God's throne, leaving the assembly. And then we would begin to sit at the edge of our seats when we discover that Job has all these things taken away from him all within this brief moment. That we would see one servant after another running up and telling Job, Job, it's all loss. Nobody's left except I. You've lost your livestock. Another runs up and says, you've lost uh, not just this, but you've, you've lost your business. You've lost your servants. And then dramatically, we would be just gripped with the anxiety that Job would be feeling as he hears that at the worst is he's lost his 10 children. And then we would be totally aghast when we would hear that the support of his wife is lost as well. She no longer stands with him. And further, that he has lost everything, including his health. And then we'd see this movie where he, he mourns, but he also worships. This is amazing. He clings to God. And then if this movie was to be portrayed before us, we would see we're no longer at the courtroom. We're beside Job's house where he's out in the field and Job is on his knees and his clothes are torn and he looks like a wreck. His face is swollen. His eyes are almost swollen shut from tears as he cries out. And we would be listening going, what is he saying? You, you turn up the TV to hear him say, the Lord gives. The Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And then there'd be these little white lines that would show up at the bottom of the screen that would help you and I understand that would say, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. And at this, I would say that this is where we're coming to in chapters 29, chapter 30 and 31, will flow in that exact same order. Chapter 29, the Lord gave. Chapter 30, the Lord dramatically takes it away. And then chapter 31, we'll conclude by seeing that in all this, Job did not sin. So that's our flow this morning. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away in all this. Job did not sin. Chapter 29, the Lord gave. 
I was very particularly disappointed as I'm reading and preparing for this and trying to get my head wrapped around the structure of the of this passage. And I'm reading in chapter 29 and commentators, some, I was disappointed. They say, Job here, you have to understand as he highlights the many ways that he has been blessed in, in chapter 29. He's like a fat cat. This Job character, he's had the wealth, and and you know, as they say, pride goes before the destruction, Proverbs 16, and a haughty spirit before the the fall. Um, Job is helping us see, the higher the highs, watch out, because the lower the lows. Well, if pride was truly the issue here for Job, I think we would have seen him begin this section in chapter 29. He would have said this, look, I'm amazing. I've done great. I, I've, I, I've I worked hard with my hands and look what I've raised up for myself. Look at all of my accomplishments. But chapter 29, as he highlights what the Lord gave, he, he begins with God himself. It's interesting. The very beginning of this, he, he says, God was a, with me in relationship. He says, God was a friend to me. Um, God was viewed as, as, as a friend. How amazing is this, Christian, that God, the supreme, the powerful one, yes, but also the friend, the friend of sinners. And here Job is showing he didn't use his wealth and his wisdom and his stature to step on the backs of the downtrodden. In chapter 29, he highlights that he would associate with the lowly. See, here's a picture of a man who, like Jesus, humbles himself to associate with the outsiders and with the outcasts. What we get and what, and, and what we, we want to uh, typically associate with particular people in our society, we want to find who's got the degrees, who's got the um, accolades, who's got the achievements and the popularity, and those are the people that we say we want to associate with. But Job didn't say he only cared for, for those, he, not just for the noble characters, but he cares for the outcast, for those who've been cast aside, the poor and he when, he, when he stumbles upon the poor in this case, he actually, rather than stepping on them to make himself seem higher, he wants to bring them up to his level. Uh, verses 7 through 11 of chapter 29 give us the picture that Job was noble. But more than this, we see in 7 where he says, When I went out to the gate of the city, I prepared my seat in the square. Young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. And the princes refrained from talking and laid their hand at their mouth. And the voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. And when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Now, why is it that when all these people saw him, they they bowed, they were quiet, they approved of him? Why is this? Is it because he used his power and influence over other people? No. Look at verse 12 and 13. Here's why. Because... I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. You see, friends, Job as a friend who walked with uh, God and was a friend with God, he says his steps were blessed and honored because the very character of God was the character of Job. He cared for the orphans. He cared for the widows. He cared for the people who were downtrodden and poor and crying out for help. Church recalled that it is not wrong to be wealthy. But here Job used his wealth, used his honor and status to care for people who had no wealth, who had no honor and had no status. 
This is the picture that we get as this chapter closes out. We see this in verse 25. He says, I chose their way and sat as a chief, but also I lived as a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Do you get the picture? So how about us? How about you? Do you, do you mirror Job in this sense? On some level like Job, do you desire that when people are mourning, that, that you would be the one who's comforting them? That when we walk by or drive by people in the community and we smile at them, are they glad to see us? And if they're, if, if they're not glad to see us, because we're not the type of people who lift them up, then how, how, I ask you, church, will they ever care what you have to say about Jesus Christ? If they don't sense in us that we just genuinely love them because of who they are as image bearers of God, they don't care what you have to say about Jesus. No, friends, we must show them God's love through our actions, like Job lifting them up. Now, this noble picture of Job is great for us to see him looking back. You see what he's doing? He's looking back on the golden days. He's looking back when things were better. This helps me because I, I wonder if some of you, you, you look back on your golden days. You look back in your life and maybe you're looking back to when the grass was a little bit greener. And where God may have blessed you, where you may have been having a very fruitful spiritual time, or the Lord was using you, particularly in ministries, or however he was using you in your family. I don't think it's wrong of us to look back and desire those days, or to think back when God was a friend to you, blessing you even as you blessed others. You see, at the end of this book, Job will have to face some reality as the Lord will speak to him, but never once does God accuse Job for looking back on the golden days. So I think it's an encouragement to us that it's good and right to rejoice where God may have been working in your life in the past. I think of done in a healthy manner, not idolizing the past, not trying to live in the past, but looking back and saying, if God was fruitful to me like that in the past, what a taste of grace for me to know that he can do that again, even if it's in glory with him forever. No, this is healthy for us to do. Job is looking back in chapter 29 saying the Lord gave. And now we see in chapter 30, the Lord has taken away. So we see this very clearly. Chapter 30, verse 1. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained and set with the dogs of my flock. Now, here as we've read this first verse of chapter 30, we, we get the great contrast from how things were to how they are now. All those men who honored and revered Job because they said, well, you're like an army commander. You're one who comforts us. You're the one who leads us out into battle. But now those same types of men who were there comforted by Job are the same men who seem to be uh, going to bring ridicule to him. And, and if you catch what he's saying, he says there are particular men, we all understand how this works, there are men in the community who are really low on the totem pole. He says the men who are the lowest on the totem pole in my community, men who had the same status as one of my dogs, their kids so the lowest men in the community who have kids, now kids are always lower than the adults, okay? Their kids are the kids who make fun of me and ridicule me and put me down. The very lowest, lowest in the totem pole are the very people who say, no, Job, you're even lower than we are. Do you see it? And in verse one, this word laugh is interesting because a chapter 30 where he, where he says, now they laugh at me. 
That's the same Hebrew word that's used in chapter 24 for smile. In, in chapter, sorry, ch- chapter 29, verse 24, where he says, I smiled on them when they had no confidence. This is, this is interesting because, in other words, Job, when he was out in the community, he would smile on particular people. And when he smiled at them, he lifted them up. If they were downtrodden, if they felt like, I don't, I'm not, nobody cares about me, nobody, I don't matter to anybody, but Job smiled at me, and suddenly they felt, hey, I have some importance, I've been lifted up. But now these kids of the men in the community who are like my dogs, they smile at me. But it's not a smile to lift me up. It's a smile of laughter. Look at him. Look at him. It's a smile of ridicule. And then verses 2 through 7 highlight how these sons, these sons are so low themselves. They are the ones who have no motivation. They are driven out of the markets because they are assumed to be thieves. They don't eat meat, but they only eat weeds from the ground because they're too lazy to, to actually hold a flock. They're too lazy to care for anybody. They live in the bushes. They are fools. They are senseless, verse 8. And Job says, it is those people who now make fun of me. And they treat me far below them. We see this too in our culture. We're not like India that has a very tight caste system, you know, where you know where everybody ranks. But we, we, we know this intuitively sometimes from, you know, the, our homes or the cars we drive and those sort of things. But even in our prison systems, there's a caste system. Uh, there, there's a way of acknowledging who's the lowest. You know, if you go to the prison system, robbers are not considered to be nearly as bad as murderers. So if you're a murderer, you're, you're lower on the caste system. And murderers are actually considered to be better than predators, aren't they? So Job, in other words, he's saying the predators say I'm below them at this point. That's how low he is. He says they abhor me, verse 10. Uh, they say, well, we're bad, we're awful, but at least we're not like Job. Where Job used to have honor, now he's lost it all. We see this at verses 19 through 20, uh, where he says, God has cast me into the mire. I become like the dust and ashes. Cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. And as Job is looking down, he sees his current condition where he used to be noble in the entire city with honor and bless the city as a king would. But rather now he's like dust and for all the crying, he has heard nothing in return. So in, in, in chapter 30, the structure is verses 1 through 15, we see that he receives ridicule from men. And in verses 16 through 30, God has been particularly cruel to himself. So Job is looking as one who's kind of between men and God. He's, he says, the men have been cruel to me, but God himself has been cruel to me as well. Brothers and, and sisters, we have to be honest here that from Job's perspective, unaware about how this story will turn out, and about how he will not only be vindicated, but God will be vindicated. Job remains in the dark, as it were, saying, God will not answer me. This is all amounted to too much for me. And so verse 21, he says, you have turned cruel to me, speaking about God. And with the might of your hand, you persecute me. Especially considering how Job used to be in verse 24, he says, and yet, uh, yet, Does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand? And in his disaster cry for help? Did I not weep for him whose hand was hard? And when my soul grieved for the needy? You you see what Job is arguing? He says, I used to be the guy. If I was sitting on my couch, 
And all of a sudden out my window, I hear somebody who's in distress, who's needing help. Somebody, a, a widow, an orphan, anybody, it didn't matter. If I heard the cry, I threw in my shoes, I went running to help them. But now I'm the guy out in the street crying out for help. And who's coming for me at this point? Nobody's coming. Job laments here. He says in verse 26, but when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. He says, I used to put on my shoes and run out to help those people who needed the help. Now I'm crying. And you want to know who puts on the shoes and comes running for me? Darkness and evil. That's where I'm at. He laments. He laments. And as a quick aside, I think about Job, how he pursued people who were in hurting need. And I just think, what a picture that our, that our church ought to be like. People ought to say, boy, church on the mountain. These were the people when I was hurting, when I was down and out. I didn't even attend there, but they just, they just came and helped me. They heard my cry. They put on their shoes. They came running to help me and bless me and care for me. What a picture of that we should be like. It's, in, it's interesting because I think the tendency is when, when people are hurting, when they're struggling, there's always a tendency to want to isolate. I was having a conversation with someone this last week. We were talking about with the snow and it just kind of kept coming and kept coming and, and, and they were kind of in a place where they were stuck in for longer than they wanted to be. And the tendency in, in those times when you're hurting is, well, I'm kind of stuck in. I should just isolate and, and, and be here. And the more you isolate, the more you can tend to want to remain in that position. Um, but Proverbs 18 Verse 1 warns us, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He, he breaks out against all sound judgment. And so we, we need to encourage those who have a tendency to want to pull back and withdraw. No, we pursue and we cry out for help. We be those who say, I need, I need help from others. If we can just picture for a moment being back in the courtroom with all the granite pillars. And instead of seeing the Lord in the midst of this courtroom, Job now is standing in the middle of this courtroom and he's looking around and, he, and he's saying, can I get a witness? Can I get a lawyer? Where's the judge who will hear me out and stick up for me? And nobody pipes up. Nobody will be a witness for him. Nobody will be an attorney. And not forever, but for this moment, he feels that he must take the stand. That he must stand up for righteousness. I don't know if anybody else here is like my wife and I were into these courtroom documentaries into true life crime, that, that sort of stuff. And it's always fascinating. We're watching these things. And whenever they kind of get to the final courtroom scene at the very end of it all, after maybe months of a trial, there's a, a point where they say, we're going to now hear the last words from the defense. And the defense gets up and what they want to do is remind the, the judge or the jury, they want to look them in the eyes and give one last account and say, here's why I'm innocent. Here's why it wasn't me. And, and, and I think in, in much of the same way, Job has, is essentially in these final words of him in the courtroom, he's saying, I, I just want to re-highlight so that it rings in the ears of the judge and the jury, I'm innocent on these matters. So he says in chapter 29, the Lord gave... In chapter 30, the Lord is taken away. And then he wants what's the very last thing ringing in the ears of the jury is, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrongdoing. And so we now turn to chapter 31. How is it that he will do this? Well, it's, 
It's interesting. Job does this in chapter 31 by, depending upon how you count it, 12 plus or minus a few ways that he is listing out that he could have sinned, but he will show that he's innocent of these crimes. It is as though um, hundreds of years prior to Moses giving of the Ten Commandments, Job's going to list out 12 or so and say, essentially, here are 12 ways I really could have boondoggled my whole life, but I haven't. And therefore, I don't deserve to be in the position I'm in. Um, So I I hope you don't want to be here past lunch. So I'm going to quickly summarize these. And so bear with me as we as we peruse very quick and we'll land this plane. But um, where where Job first hits on in chapter 31 verses one and two, he wants it to be clear that he has a clear conscience. He is not gazed lustfully at a woman. So in verses one and two, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Um, Here, the issue for Job is, it's recognizing, he's not saying, I haven't noticed that there are beautiful women in the world. That's not wrong. But he's saying, I've not gazed at a woman with this um, eye towards sex. That's, That's the intent. So he begins perhaps with this sin issue, because I believe it kind of cuts to the heart where none of the the three friends or anybody else in the community would have seen. Only Job would have known this part. And he wants to say, the very core of of me, I'm I'm clean on this matter. Um, And then second, this leads him to directly address the issue of deceit. Verses four through six, he makes it clear. He He says, I haven't been dealing in falsehood. In ancient times, there was a sense that Things were to be weighed, and um, there's been some work done in history to show that the Egyptians, they, they would have, um, they would have at the in their afterlife, they would have weighed the heart with uh, against the weight of a feather. So they would have said, if if the heart was heavy with deceit and sin, then it would have weighed more than the feather, and and you wouldn't make it into the afterlife. But Job, in other words, in, in that sort of backdrop, he's saying, my heart hasn't been weighed down with deceit, that that my heart is as light as a feather on these matters. Um, and then in verses 7 through 8, we get the issue again of deceit and falsehood, but Job says, if I've been false, then go ahead. Let me, never, let me work, but never re- reap the benefit. Verses 9 through 12, he returns to the issue of sexual sin and adultery. He he makes it clear, I haven't been waiting at my neighbor's house while he's away in the field to try and seduce his wife. Uh, I've not been caught up in in adultery. Um, He has not been enticed towards women in this way. In verses 13 through 15, he says that he's been fair in his dealings with the employees and servants. In 16 through 20, he's been generous to the needy, again to the orphans and widows, the ones we've been speaking of. Verses 21 through 23, he's not been a violent man. 24 through 25, he's not, entrust, he's not put his hope in wealth. And in 26 through 28, he says, look, I'm not an idolatrous person. I'm worshiping the creator. I'm not worshiping the created. Even Job seems to be loving towards his enemies. We see this in verses 29 through 30 here, where he says that I've rejoiced. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him, I've not let my mouth sin by asking for his life or with a curse. Here, Job, an Old Testament man of faith, has this New Testament understanding of, of love for his enemies. He's not wishing evil even upon his enemies. Verse 32, he makes it clear that he's cared for the sojourner. He's been hospitable. Verses 33 through 34, he's not a hypocrite. 
And then we come to these major verses at, that I read earlier in our opening at 35 through 7. This, this function is as a break here, 35 through 37, where he breaks in his closing argument again to call out for a witness for an advocate. So we see this at 35 where he says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince. I would approach him. Um, here, he's, he's looking for this legitimate in, in, indictment. Um, just like, uh, if, again, if you're familiar with you know, crime documentaries, oftentimes when they get somebody who's accused and they bring them down to the police station for questioning, They'll slide over a yellow legal pad and they'll say, write down all that you know. If you're a witness or even if you're the accused, write down what you know and then sign it. And Job is saying, I've done that. I've got my legal pad here. I've listed out all the ways that I could be deserving to be in this place. And I'm signing the bottom of it. Here it is. And if you can truly get an indictment on me, if you can truly have someone come and accuse me, I'll wear it, I'll wear it like a crown. I'll, I'll, I'll fess up to it. This is, these are the ways that I've fallen. And then we see one last way in which he says, since nobody's come with an indictment, you can even ask creation itself, verses 38 through 40, where he says, look, go ask the, you know, essentially the mountains and the trees. They'll, they'll testify. They've been watching me this entire time. They see how I have been behaving. Well, I know this was brief, but what a list. Uh, Surely not all the ways he lived honoring the Lord, but several categories that give us an idea of here's one who follows Yahweh. And so men in this church and maybe perhaps young men in this church, um, this is the sort of man, this character of Job that we would want as a leader in this church. Here's a picture of a man that we would want to be an elder or a pastor or a deacon leading this congregation, one who was upright in this, in this way. And, and even if you never desire these, to do that, these are the sort of character issues that one desires all Christian men and all Christian women to exhibit. But meanwhile, the words here of Job are ended. It's the very last verse here at the end of verse 40. Chapter 32, the words of Job are ended. There'll be a few, there's a minor exception. At the very end of this, there'll be just a few lines where Job will pipe up, we'll highlight those. But here again, as if in the courtroom scene, he's saying, here I stand. Here I stand. I got my hand on a stack of Bibles. I've sworn to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And here I stand, I rest my case. And if we were the three amigos, um, if we were Eliphaz or, or Bildad or Zophar there, we would have heard this. We would understand Job's main point to say, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, but in all this, Job did not sin. Um, but we're not the three amigos. You and I, we're one who has a question like Job. We're, we're like Job who's saying, where Where's the advocate? Where's the one who will stand up for me? Where's my attorney? Now, in in our justice system, if you don't have an attorney, one will be appointed for you. And sometimes that can be a bad thing. But uh, in our our case, you know, um, he's saying, I don't even have a a state-appointed attorney. I've got nobody. So I've had to take the stand myself and stand up for myself. 
And meanwhile, Job waits for one who will stand in the gap for him. And it took thousands of years later. But Galatians 4, 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I know some of you, you sit there and you say, that's great for Job. The book opens with, he was blameless. What about me? How can I ever be defended? You look down and you can say, I can read many of these things here that Job's highlighting. He's like, well, guilty as charged. What about the rest of us? Do we get an attorney? Do we get an advocate? Friends, what Job longed for, you and I have in Jesus Christ. We have an advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Romans 5, 6, for while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, God sent forth to us a son, our advocate, our court lawyer, and he will not only shut the mouth of our accuser, the Satan, but he will cast him down, has cast him down. Revelation chapter 12 tells us clearly that after Christ defeated death, the accuser, the Satan has been cast down for the accuser of our brethren has been cast down, thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Brothers and sisters, The gospel tells us that we're no longer like Job. You and I don't need to stand up and list a myriad of ways that we are perfect. That's not the position we are in. We we are no longer like Job trying to prove our faithfulness and our innocence. No, Christ bore the punishment in our place and he stands as our advocate before the Father. If God knew that our works and listing out all of our works would be the way that we are saved and make it to heaven, he would have sent us more law, wouldn't he? He'd say, if, if you need more works and to-do lists to get you into heaven, let me give you more. But he didn't give us more law. He gave us more grace in Christ himself to you. And so to remind some of you, if this Jesus isn't yours this morning, then no matter how much you are able to self-justify, no matter how much you're able to list out the ways that you've been cleaned, you'll never be clean before God. You will need to repent of your dead works. You will need to cling to grace found in Christ alone. The payment of his life for your life. There are many Christians here who would love to speak to you about this. And you could speak with me after service. There would bring me no greater joy than to talk about the grace and forgiveness that we have in Jesus. For others here though this morning, for other church members here, this passage may land on you as a reminder that what Christ has done to ultimately free you from self-justification. I'm always amazed at the number of Christians who speak as though they need to sort of prove their innocence. They need to prove that their their righteousness or their worth. And you hear this at times in conversations where even as a follower of Christ, some may, uh, you know, become radically insecure. 
When speaking, they may want to highlight all the reasons that they're a decent person, or they want you to catch certain things about them over time, so they will say things, um, hey, I want you to know that when I was younger, I was involved with this sort of missions movement or this evangelism thing. I went off and did this. And they'll want to highlight when I served in this ministry with this prominent role and this leadership, and they want to emphasize they, they, they. And the more the Christian blabs on about all the reasons you should believe that they are justified and deserve to be loved and honored, I want you to know something, church. They've chosen second best. Let me remind you of the old hymn that we sing, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The song that we'll sing here momentarily too, that his grace is enough. We need not add one more drop of our self-justification to his grace. If we do that, if we try and add to Christ, we take away Christ. We need to rest holy and say, yes, his grace is enough. Because what Job longed for, church, you and I have in Christ, our advocate. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would stand in the gap for us. Then when we look around the courtroom, We wouldn't have to look far. We wouldn't have to look long and we get to point, there he is, with scarred hands and a scarred side who bore the cross for us. We'd say, there is our advocate. There is the one who stands in my stead. And would that bring us relief even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.